Section 15 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Betty B. Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 15 Alexander Hamilton, Part 2 hamilton became one of washington's family on march first seventeen hundred seventy seven with the rank of lieutenant-colonel he was barely twenty years of age washington was forty-seven and the average age of the family omitting its head was twenty-five all had been selected on account of superior intelligence and a record of dashing courage when hamilton took his place at the board he was the youngest member save one in point of literary talent he stood among the very foremost in the country for then there was no literature in america save the literature of politics and as an officer he had shown rare skill and bravery and yet such was hamilton's ambition and confidence in himself that he hesitated to accept the position and considered it an act of sacrifice to do so but having once accepted he threw himself into the work and became washington's most intimate and valued assistant washington's correspondence with his generals with congress and the written decisions demanded daily on hundreds of minor questions mostly devolved on hamilton for work gravitates to him who can do it best a simple yes no or perhaps from the chief must be elaborated into a diplomatic letter conveying just the right shade of meaning all with its proper emphasis and show of dignity and respect thousands of these dispatches can now be seen at the capitol and the ease grace directness and insight shown in them are remarkable there is no muddy rhetoric or befuddled clauses they were written by one with a clear understanding who was intent that the person addressed should understand too many of these documents were merely signed by washington but a few reveal interlined sentences and occasional word changed in washington's hand thus showing that all was closely scrutinized and digested as a member of washington's staff hamilton did not have the independent command that he so much desired but he endured that heroic winter at valley forge was present at all the important battles took an active part in most of them and always gained honor and distinction as an aide to washington hamilton's most important mission was when he was sent to general gates to secure reinforcements for the southern army gates had defeated burgoyne and won a full dozen stern victories in the north in the meantime washington had done nothing but make a few brave retreats gates's army was made up of hardy and seasoned soldiers who had met the enemy and defeated him over and over again the flush of success was on their banners and washington knew that if a few thousand of those rugged veterans could be secured to reinforce his own well-nigh discouraged troops victory would also perch upon the banners of the south as a superior officer he had the right to demand these troops but to reduce the force of a general who is making an excellent success is not the common rule of war the country looked upon gates as its savior and gates was feeling a little that way himself gates had but to demand it and the position of commander-in-chief would go to him washington thoroughly realized this 
and therefore hesitated about issuing an order requesting a part of gates's force to secure these troops as if the suggestion came from gates was a most delicate commission alexander hamilton was dispatched to gates's headquarters armed as a last resort with a curt military order to the effect that he should turn over a portion of his army to washington hamilton's orders were bring the troops but do not deliver this order unless you are obliged to hamilton brought the troops and returned the order with seal intact the act of his sudden breaking with washington has been much exaggerated in fact it was not a sudden act at all for it had been premeditated for some months there was a woman in the case hamilton had done more than conquer general gates on that northern trip at albany he had met elizabeth daughter of general schuyler and won her after what has been spoken of as a short and sharp skirmish both alexander and elizabeth regarded a clerkship as quite too limited a career for one so gifted they felt that nothing less than commander of a division would answer how to break loose that was the question and when washington met him at the head of the stairs of the new windsor hotel and sharply chided him for being late the young man embraced the opportunity and said sir since you think i have been remiss we part it was the act of a boy and the figure of this boy five feet five inches high weight one hundred twenty age twenty four talking back to his chief six foot three weight two hundred age fifty has its comic side military rule demands that every one shall be on time and washington's rebuke was proper and right further than this one feels that if he had followed up his rebuke by boxing the young man's ears for sassing back he would still not have been outside the lines of duty but an hour afterwards we find washington sending for the youth and endeavoring to mend the break and although hamilton proudly repelled his advances washington forgave all and generously did all he could to advance the young man's interests washington's magnanimity was absolutely without flaw but his attitude towards hamilton has a more suggestive meaning when we consider that it was a testimonial of the high estimate he placed on hamilton's ability at yorktown washington gave hamilton the perilous privilege of leading the assault hamilton did his work well rushing with fiery impetuosity upon the fort carried all before him and in ten minutes had planted the stars and stripes on the ramparts of the enemy it was a fine and fitting close to his glorious military career when washington became president the most important office to be filled was that of manager of the exchequer in fact all there was of it was the office there was no treasury no mint no fixed revenue no credit but there were debts foreign and domestic and clamoring creditors by the thousand the debts consisted of what was then the vast sum of eighty million dollars the treasury was empty washington had many advisers who argued that the nation could never live under such a weight of debt the only way was flatly and frankly to repudiate wipe the slate clean and begin afresh this was what the country expected would be done and so low was the hope of payment that creditors could be found who were willing to compromise their claims for ten cents on the dollar robert morris who had managed the finances during the period of the confederation utterly refused to attempt the task again 
but he named a man who he said could bring order out of chaos if any living man could that man was alexander hamilton washington appealed to hamilton offering him the position of secretary of the treasury hamilton aged thirty-two gave up his law practice which was yielding him ten thousand a year to accept this office which paid three thousand five hundred before the british cannon washington did not lose heart but to face the angry mob of creditors waving white paper claims made him quake but with hamilton's presence his courage came back the first thing that hamilton decided upon was that there should be no repudiation no offer of compromise would be considered every man should be paid in full and further than this the general government would assume the entire war debt of each individual state washington concurred with hamilton on these points but he could make neither oral nor written argument in a way that would convince others so this task was left to hamilton hamilton appeared before congress and explained his plans explained them so lucidly and with such force and precision that he made an indelible impression there were grumblers and complainers but these did not and could not reply to hamilton for he saw all over and around the subject and they saw it only at an angle hamilton had studied the history of finance and knew the financial schemes of every country no question of statecraft could be asked him for which he did not have a reply ready he knew the science of government as no other man in america then did and recognizing this congress asked him to prepare reports on the collection of revenue the coasting trade the effects of a tariff shipbuilding post office extension and also a scheme for a judicial system when in doubt they asked hamilton and all the time hamilton was working at this bewildering maze of detail he was evolving that financial policy broad comprehensive and minute which endures even to this day even to the various forms of accounts that are now kept at the treasury department at washington his insistence that to preserve the credit of a nation every debt must be paid is an idea that no statesman now dare question the entire aim and intent of his policy was high open and frank honesty the people should be made to feel an absolute security in their government and this being so all forms of industry would prosper and the prosperity of the people is the prosperity of the nation to such a degree of confidence did hamilton raise the public credit that in a very short time the government found no trouble in borrowing all the money it needed at four per cent and yet this was done in face of the fact that its debt had increased just here was where his policy invited its strongest and most bitter attack for there are men to-day who cannot comprehend that a public debt is a public blessing and that all liabilities have a strict and undivorceable relationship to assets alexander hamilton was a leader of men he could do the thinking of his time and map out a policy arranging every detail for a kingdom he has been likened to napoleon in his ability to plan and execute with rapid and marvellous precision and surely the similarity is striking but he was not an adept in the difficult and delicate art of diplomacy he could not wait he demanded instant obedience and lacked all of that large patient calm magnanimity so splendidly shown forth since by abraham lincoln 
unlike jefferson his great rival he could not calmly and silently bide his time but i will not quarrel with a man because he is not someone else he saw things clearly at a glance he knew because he knew and if others would not follow he had the audacity to push on alone this recklessness to the opinion of the slow and plodding this indifference to the dull gradually drew upon him the hatred of a class they said he was a monarchist at heart and such men are dangerous the country became divided into those who were with hamilton and those who were against him the very transcendent quality of his genius wove the net that eventually was to catch his feet and accomplish his ruin it has been the usual practice for nearly a hundred years to refer to aaron burr as a roue a rogue and a thorough villain who took the life of a gentle and innocent man i have no apologies to make for colonel burr the record of his life lies open in many books and i would neither conceal nor explain away if i should attempt to describe the man and liken him to another that man would be alexander hamilton they were the same age within ten months they were the same height within an inch their weight was the same within five pounds and in temperament and disposition they resembled each other as brothers seldom do each was passionate ambitious proud in the drawing-room where one of these men chanced to be there was room for no one else such was the vivacity the wit and the generous glowing good nature shown with women the manner of these men were most gentle and courtly and the low alluring voice of each was music's honeyed flattery set to words both were much under the average height yet the carriage of each was so proud and imposing that everywhere they went men made way and women turned and stared both were public speakers and lawyers of such eminence that they took their pick of clients and charged all the fee that policy would allow in debate there was a willful aggressiveness a fiery sureness a lofty certainty that moved judges and juries to do their bidding henry cabot lodge says that so great was hamilton's renown as a lawyer that clients flocked to him because the belief was abroad that no judge dared decide against him with burr it was the same both made large sums and both spent all as fast as made in point of classic education burr had the advantage he was the grandson of the reverend jonathan edwards in his strong personal magnetism and keen many-sided intellect aaron burr strongly resembled the gifted presbyterian divine who wrote sinners in the hands of an angry god his father was the reverend aaron burr president of princeton college he was a graduate of princeton and like hamilton always had the ability to focus his mind on the subject in hand and wring from its very core burr's reputation as to his susceptibility to women's charms is the world's common very common property he was unhappily married his wife died before he was thirty he was a man of ardent nature and stalked through the world a conquering don juan a historian however records that his alliances were only with women who were deemed by society to be respectable married women unhappily mated knowing his reputation very often placed themselves in his way going to him for advice as moths court the flame young tender and innocent girls had no charm for him hamilton was happily married to a woman of aristocratic family rich 
educated intellectual gentle and worthy of him at his best they had a family of eight children hamilton was a favorite of women everywhere and was mixed up in various scandalous intrigues he was an easy mark for a designing woman in one instance the affair was seized upon by his political foes and made capital of to his sore disadvantage hamilton met the issue by writing a pamphlet laying bare the entire shameless affair to the horror of his family and friends copies of this pamphlet may be seen in the rooms of the american historical society at new york burr had been attorney general of new york state and also united states senator each man had served on washington's staff each had a brilliant military record each had acted as second in a duel each recognized the honor of the code stern political differences arose not so much through matters of opinion and conscience as through ambitious rivalry neither was willing the other should rise yet both thirsted for place and power burr ran for the presidency and was sternly strongly bitterly opposed as a dangerous man by hamilton at the election one more electoral vote would have given the highest office of the people to aaron burr as it was he tied with jefferson the matter was thrown into the house of representatives and jefferson was given the office with burr as vice-president burr considered and perhaps rightly that were it not for hamilton's assertive influence he would have been president of the united states while still vice-president burr sought to become governor of new york thinking this the surest road to receiving the nomination for the presidency at the next election hamilton openly and bitterly opposed him and the office went to another burr considered and rightly that were it not for hamilton's influence he would have been governor of new york burr smarting under the sting of this continual opposition by a man who himself was shelved politically through his own too fiery ambition sent a note by his friend venesse to hamilton asking whether the language he had used concerning him a dangerous man referred to him politically or personally hamilton replied evasively saying he could not recall all that he might have said during fifteen years of public life especially he said in his letter it cannot be reasonably expected that i shall enter into any explanation upon a basis so vague as you have adopted i trust on more reflection you will see the matter in the same light if not however i only regret the circumstances and must abide the consequences when fighting men use fighting language they invite a challenge hamilton's excessively polite regret that he must abide the consequences simply meant fight as his language had for a space of five years a challenge was sent by the hand of pendleton hamilton accepted being the challenged man for duelists are always polite he was given the choice of weapons he chose pistols at ten paces at seven o'clock on the morning of july eleventh eighteen hundred four the participants met on the heights of weehawken overlooking new york bay on a toss hamilton won the choice of position and his second also won the right of giving the word to fire each man removed his coat and cravat the pistols were loaded in their presence as pendleton handed his pistol to hamilton he asked shall i set the hair trigger not this time replied hamilton with pistols primed and cocked 
the men were stationed facing each other thirty feet apart both were pale but free from any visible nervousness or excitement neither had partaken of stimulants each was asked if he had anything to say or if he knew of any way by which the affair could be terminated here and then each answered quietly in the negative pendleton standing fifteen feet to the right of his principal said one two three present and as the last final sounding of the letter t escaped his teeth burr fired followed almost instantly by the other hamilton arose convulsively on his toes reeled and burr dropping his smoking pistol sprang towards him to support him a look of regret on his face van ness raised an umbrella over the fallen man and motioned burr to be gone the ball passed through hamilton's body breaking a rib and lodging in the second lumbar vertebra the bullet from hamilton's pistol cut a twig four feet above burr's head while he was lying on the ground hamilton saw his pistol near and said look out for that pistol it is loaded pendleton knows i did not intend to fire at him hamilton died the following day first declaring that he bore colonel burr no ill-will colonel burr said he very much regretted the whole affair but the language and attitude of hamilton forced him to send a challenge or remain quiet and be branded as a coward he fully realized before the meeting that if he killed hamilton it would be political death for him too at the time of the deed burr had no family hamilton had a wife and seven children his oldest son having fallen in a duel fought three years before on the identical spot where he too fell burr fled the country three years afterward he was arrested for treason in trying to found an independent state within the borders of the united states he was tried and found not guilty after some years spent abroad he returned and took up the practice of law in new york he was fairly successful lived a modest quiet life and died september fourteenth eighteen hundred twenty six aged eighty years hamilton's widow survived him just one half a century dying in her ninety-eighth year so passeth away the glory of the world end of section fifteen